0: Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, is another local media outlet about to fall? And has affordable housing become a buzzword with no clear definition? We'll try to go Webster's on it. Plus, we meet one of the artists at our Brick Open Call exhibit. Hi, I'm Ashley Ford. Thanks for joining us today. We had Andy Bickelbaum on the show last week. He was the activist, culture jammer, and documentary filmmaker who spoke about a range of social justice issues and projects, including a recent video called Lululand about New York's IDC. The IDC, or Independent Democratic Conference, is a group of state senators elected as Democrats but who caucus and often vote with Republicans, giving them the legislative majority. There are various reasons why the elected Democrats do this, and I'll let you watch the video to see their explanation. But the effect is, those pieces of progressive legislation that New Yorkers care so much about don't even come up for a vote in the Senate, or if they do, they get heavily watered down along the way. We're talking about things like single-payer health care, the DREAM Act, sanctuary state laws, full-day kindergarten, climate change proposals, the kinds of policies the current occupant of the White House and his party are doing their best to block or undo. The IDC will be a big story in the next year's state elections, and we'll stay on it. Senator Jesse Hamilton, we mentioned him on last week's show, is a member of the IDC. He was the one making sure that kids from NYCHA housing could get free lead tests. That's commendable. But like fellow IDC member, state senator for part of Brooklyn and Staten Island, Diane Savino, he was reelected in 2016 and will be on the ticket again in 2018. If we care about the progressive measures that reflect our ideals, then we can hold their feet to the fire and make sure they truly represent our interests. And we can have our say about their futures next November. DNA Info and Gothamist were both covering the IDC when they got shut down last month. And in their wake, the city's in danger of losing yet another source for local journalism, brooklyner.com. We'll check in with their editor publisher, then learn about the state of affordable housing in the city and if it's really affordable. And finally, a visit with one of the artists whose work is hanging right behind me in the brick gallery. Stay with us. A group of Brooklyn community leaders got together at a church in Flatbush on Saturday to raise awareness about human trafficking in Brooklyn's Haitian community. More than 300,000 children in Haiti are victims of domestic slavery, a practice known as restavik. Some of these children are relocated here to Brooklyn, living mostly in the shadows. Organizers at Saturday's gathering introduced a campaign to train 100 community members in the Flatbush and East Flatbush neighborhoods on how to identify these victims. There is currently no estimate on how many may be living here under conditions of sexual and domestic slavery. Incidentally, Sunday was Human Rights Day. It might not have mattered much this summer, when a cold shower felt refreshing, but it's been five months since one group of Brooklyn residents has had heat and hot water. And now tenants can't do dishes without freezing their fingers. The city shut off Brooklyn Heights building's gas supply in July after the owner was cited with a violation and won't continue service until the owner, Aranka Sillen makes necessary repairs to the roof. Residents have filed several lawsuits against the owner, but apparently she hasn't shown up in court and says she can't repair the loose bricks on the rooftop chimney because the neighbors won't allow her access to the roof. Just checking the 10-day forecast for Brooklyn. Wednesday a high of 22. Ouch. (music) Newsflash, Brooklyn Bridge is congested. The roadway, yes, but the walkway too. Pedestrians cram onto the walking side and spill over into the bike lane, while irate bikers zip by, sometimes knocking into bemused selfie stars and tourists who are looking for the perfect shot, but who miss the biker icon painted on the wood planks. According to the New York Times, pedestrian and bike bridge crossings have gone up significantly in the past half dozen years, with an average of 32,000 people walking across on the weekends. With everyone's safety at stake, what's the city going to do? They're looking at bike-only entrances on the Manhattan side and maybe even widening the promenade, but that decision won't even be made until 2019. In the meantime, take out those earbuds and listen for those bells. Up next, the editor and publisher of brooklyner.com, the kind of media outlet we count on to get the local angle, for example, on the Brooklynite suspected of the bombing at Port Authority. But it might have to close its doors. Don't go away. When DNA Info and Gothamist were shut down by the conservative businessman and philanthropist Joe Ricketts, New York City lost 26 reporters. It came at a time when many observers were extolling the virtues and the necessity of local journalism. Then, just last week, another local news org, Brooklyner.com, said it may also have to shut its doors if it can't crowdsource enough money to continue operations. Perilous times for local journalism. Here to tell us about brooklyner.com's plight is its editor and publisher, Liana Zagare. Thanks for joining us on 112 k to be here. So with DNA Info and Gothamist, people were basically like, Joe Ricketts is saying that it's just not profitable. Other people were saying that it was union busting. But for you guys, this is money. It is a money issue. So can you tell me what's going on?
1: Well, as you know, digital news has been struggling to find a way to fund itself for Mm -hmm. quite a few years now. So we're not unique in that plight. And um, so far, we've funded our operations through a mix of advertising and sponsored content and um, also private charity um, in form of mortgage on my house. Right. Um, (laughs) So that is... um, That is how local news have been funded in Brooklyn for the last 10 years on the Brooklyner. What has happened in this period of time is that local advertising, like the small pizza shops and the bars Mm -hmm. that used to advertise on our site in the last couple of years have gone over to Facebook. And, you know, it makes perfect sense. It's just that that's a few dollars less that are funding local journalism. Mm -hmm. And when we did our um, budget, we looked at it and what we saw is that there's just not enough money right. that's coming in predictably so that we could continue paying the wages. Right. So... um Whew. so that's yeah, tough. That's tough.
0: really, really tough, which is hard to reconcile with the fact that so many people, so many people, talk about the importance of local journalism. People love sites like the Brooklyner, they love DNA Gothamist, they lo- or DNA Info and Gothamist. Like, they love having those news sources available to them so why is it so hard to make them sustainable
1: we have lots of readers and there is absolutely no question there's interest in local news and community mm-hmm. news and God, neighborhood news we all want yes. to know what's going on in our neighborhood we do um, it it's expensive to produce mm-hmm. it takes reporters time to go to the meetings to cover them to check the sources, to check the facts, to make sure that it's accurate and um, true. Um, As the traditional sources of revenue have disappeared, I think more and more people are realizing that without reader support, there is just no future.
0: Right, you can't do it.
1: Nope.
0: So what were your thoughts when you heard about DNA Info and Gothamist being shut down? Just initial thoughts
1: first reaction was like, God, he took the site down? Yeah, I mean, that was just, uh, you don't do that. That's, mm-hmm. that's history. Oh yeah. But the other thought was like, I'm surprised he lasted as long as he did. Wow. Because I did not see how DNA info was making money. And there is only so much money one can lose. It wasn't enough not-for-profit, mm-hmm. um, even though I'm sure it probably de facto was.
0: Right, when well, it's just how it added up in the end so can you tell me a little bit because when we talk about the importance of local news i feel like you know people might understand it but they also take it for granted a little bit so when something happens like what happened today at port authority at the port authority with that explosion and also with the perpetrator apparently being from brooklyn are, is there a missed opportunity there when we don't have local news options to cover that in depth the way maybe other places might not? Maybe they don't have the same sources, maybe they don't have the same history with the people there?
1: Well, there's two elements to that, I think. Um, one is the immediacy. Like, you know, we heard, um, you know, the person lived in essentially on the border of Parkville and Kensington. Mm -hmm. And it's just, um, you know, we heard the helicopters. That was the first one. They were like, hey, we've got all the choppers above. (laughs) Like, what's going on? What's going on And it's like, oh, the street's blocked. So that's the block. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, there's that kind of real-time reporting that, you know, you can't necessarily get response from the cops yet, Mm -hmm. but you know, that something's going on in the neighborhood. And and then, you know, they confirmed that, yes, indeed, he was from Brooklyn, and we know exactly where. But beyond that, and you know, everyone's got the day one story, it's more like, you know, there's a large Bangladeshi community in Kensington, mm-hmm. just like there's a large Uzbeki community for the down in Sheepshead. I mean, there's like a lot of various sub-communities of Muslim religion that, you know, coming together and telling these stories and they they have to live most of like ninety-nine point ninety-nine percent of them are just regular neighbors like us right who then all of us and ha- have to deal with the fact that you know this this one person's giving everyone a bad name right. and you know how do you then like support them and how do you make sure that we as a community are not destroyed by the fact that one person decides to do something horrible
0: right and it takes where
1: i think it takes community it takes local right. news it takes that kind of dedication and knowing who who the people are and you know and also being there day in and day out yes and going to the meetings and and going to the gatherings and being
0: know, a familiar face
1: being a familiar face and just right. being there
0: absolutely so because we don't want to lose that okay in general we don't want to lose more local news sources what's the model that you guys want to use moving forward
1: we have decided that in order to be sustainable and be predictable, and be able to um, pay reporters' salaries
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, and let them have a living, we need to have report reader-supported business model first and foremost and then everything that we can get in through advertising is extra and wonderful Mm -hmm. um, and can fund the business side expenses but as far as it comes to the neighborhood reporters that if we can get them funded by readers Mm -hmm. we're light years ahead of like you know yeah sustainability and all it takes is for a lot of people to give a little right and not even that many. I think if we can just get one percent of our readers to give, right. us, um, you know, five dollars, that would that would make a huge difference. In the so,
0: reporting. how do they do that? How do readers then, if, if a reader is watching this right now and they go, "I love the Brooklyner. I want to support the Brooklyner. How do I go do that?"
1: Just go to the website brooklynair.com and click on any of the 16 ads that <laughs> pop of in the your face, ads. <laughs> and just say subscribe and become a monthly monthly supporter. It's um, it may, it would mean a world to us, and it's been amazing to watch. I did not think we were gonna get 500 when I put out the call on right. Thursday. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we crossed 500 people on Saturday. Wow! And um, so it's it's been overwhelming truly, just to get the responses of like, you know, you did that story eight years ago and like it made all the difference. And I'm like, wow. eight years ago, like that was a <laughs> And you know, but that's what happens when it matters. And yeah. you know, when you make a difference and you fix a playground or, you know, uncover an oil spill or just, right. it, it's from the smallest to the big and you make all the difference.
0: Well, what's the deadline for when people need to make sure they have those pledges in or have pledged their support in some way to make sure that we keep going with the Brooklyner. When's that?
1: That will be midnight New Year's Eve. Midnight New Year's Eve? Yeah.
0: How many more people do you need?
1: I, I think it's about, tw- it's less than 2,500. Less than
0: 2,500? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, in but Brooklyn, still a long way to go. We, see,
0: well, we can see what we can do. I feel like in Brooklyn, we can come up with 2,500 people to help. I out hope here. so. I hope so too. I hope so. Thank you so much for being here and for talking to us about this, um, for your lifetime of work in this area. I really appreciate it.
1: I hope to be here for another 10, 15, 20 years. I be- hope too. I hope too. We'll get it together. All right. Thank you.
0: Up next, when you hear the words affordable housing, do you often wonder, affordable for whom? Our next guest will help us answer that question. Now. Here's the latest installment in the ongoing saga of New York City and affordable housing. Mayor de Blasio has selected eight buildings in Brooklyn to be our modest contribution to his overall plan to preserve or create 200,000 units of housing with regulated rent by 2024. The question on everyone's mind is, will these actually be affordable and to whom? To discuss this, we have today LaToya Campbell from Impact Brooklyn, which you may also know as the Pratt Area Community Council. Thanks for being on the show, LaToya. Thank you for having me. First of all, can you just tell me how do we define affordable?
2: That's a very good question.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Affordability in terms of affordable housing could be a catch-22, especially when you don't know what it is. Right. So it could go more like this. AMI, which is the area median income, which Mm -hmm. is basically uh, in the demographic area, you basically say, okay, this is the amount of money or income annually a person needs to make in order to afford. Mm -hmm. It could be as low as 30%, and it could be as high as 165, which is all still affordable. So you can make as low as $15,000, as high as six figures, and it would still be considered affordable
0: doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me and I feel like it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to other people.
2: Because when you you think of affordability, you think of your own specific situation and you think of, okay, well, I can't pay that, but really and truly the spectrum of affordability hasn't always been fleshed out, which I find the word is a little bit catchy. It's a catch-22 because but you think of affordable, you think of you're realistically like okay, thirty percent of my income, this is what I can afford. Right. But the spectrum goes higher than what uh, a normal person of low income, because low income is not just you know make someone that makes fifty k. Right. It could be someone that makes twelve k. That's thirty percent. So
0: who's defining it?
2: So right that's now. that's basically done by HUD. in terms of um, they basically set that guidelines um, Mm -hmm. and they make that income limits. The income limits is basically the guide to see what is the maximum a person can make and then you go from there. The rent signifies what the income will be, which is the minimum. This is how much a person would need to make in order to afford that specific rent.
0: If I was making, let's say, I was making $150,000 a year, Mm -hmm. could I still get Affordable housing?
2: You can. The AMI would just be over 100 AMI. So you would wow. have to make, so for instance, if it's a 30 AMI, it's 15,000. If you're like mm-hmm. at 60 for one bedroom, that's like 40,080. Mm-hmm. Um, as you go up, the income band goes up. So you okay. could, if you make over like six figures, like you were saying, mm-hmm. you'll fall into that 100 AMI, 130 AMI, but okay. you have to make at least. 76 to 100 and change in order to afford that. All so right. Af- so affordability definitely is defined by essentially your income. By my income. By your income. Is it working to define it <laughs> that way? <laughs> the thing about it is it's it's working in a sense, mm-hmm. but and also it's, an individual knowing, okay, what is considered income? Is it just um, what I earn? And is knowing the difference between your gross and your net and knowing that it's not what you actually take home, it's that gross. It's what you've earned. And if you did any overtime, that's also taken into account. If you have any other source of income coming in, Mm -hmm. all of that defines what your annual income will be. And all of that is taken into account. Okay. So, especially if you do overtime and you did it that one time and you're a penny over, you no longer will qualify because of the subsidized housing in order to keep it affordable, we have to maintain that minimum and maximum.
0: So uh, Mm 200,000 affordable housing units is the goal, but affordable housing in the city right now, there's not enough for enough people, for the the Mm -hmm. amount of people who need it. I agree. So how are people vying for these spots now to be able to get into affordable housing?
2: So for instance, um, from experience, I can see, for hypothetically speaking, did a lottery ten units, mm-hmm. thirty eight thousand people applied. The lottery, everyone is going towards it because it's a housing crisis. Everyone wants one, and because they don't necessarily know the process, they just feel that okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna get this apartment, but not understanding that it's really and truly is a lottery. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a remedy, but is it going to be necessarily a, a, a whole like where would it solve the problem? No, because there's right. still um, individuals that will not, there's only 10 units mm-hmm. out of that 38,000 individuals, and there's still going to be people that are still looking for housing mm-hmm. or don't qualify, too, where well, they know they don't qualify, but they just feel like, if I could get my foot in the door, right. can I move forward from there? Right. So it's all about the knowledge and empowerment, which is what Impact Brooklyn tries to do.
0: Talk to me a little bit more about that, about what Impact does, about what you do, and about how it like ultimately affects the communities that you work in.
2: We've been doing it for 50 years, over 50 years. For, um, we've been helping individuals in terms of tenant organizing, um, help individuals know their rights as tenants, which is um, creating tenant associations, um, going to community board meetings so they know what's going on in your community. We also have our, First time home buyer classes where we empower individuals that may feel that renting isn't for them anymore and they would like to go and move forward into purchasing a home. If you have any issues when you get that home, we help you with that, keeping your home Mm -hmm. and also um, losing it in terms of foreclosure prevention. Then there's the affordable housing department, Mm -hmm. which is what we do. We help um, individuals in terms of not only do we run the log. When I say the log, we don't only um, market, which is we interview individuals, make sure that they income qualify, and then move them forward to lease up. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, we also help individuals that have not seen Housing Connect before or may not know what it is Help them to go navigate the website, how to read the ad, how do you apply that to your specific household, right. how do you apply, how do, what's your chances of applying online, applying for a paper. Mm-hmm. Um, just going through the process and getting them prepared. Getting the necessary paperwork that you need. What's paperwork that you need to have handy, and what paperwork that you um, have it on a constant basis so you could get yourself prepared.
0: You really take people through the whole We do. Process. We
2: advocate for them as well. We can't advocate for our process, of right. course, but we take them through. We, we definitely we like to empower as a community boards organization we like to empower our community so they can know what they need to do to move forward
0: fantastic well thank you so much for being here and for talking about this it's just it's a lot of information but it's good information it's very good information
2: thank you so much
0: next up brick put out an open call for artists lots of them are showing their work in the gallery right through our glass wall here and in just a moment one of them will be on this side of the wall Our next guest has done it all, costume design, music promotion, magazine publishing, even chorus line dancing. But today, she's here to chat about her work as an artist. Marianne Munfortin's work is on display at Brick's very own contemporary art exhibit, Open Call Truth, work that reflects her wide-ranging experience with the arts. Welcome to 112BK, Marianne. Thank you. So first of all, can you just give me an idea of what inspires your art? We were talking a little bit before the cameras even started about you know politics and the world and culture as it is, but where do you find a lot of your inspiration right now?
3: I mean, I definitely feel that I am absorbing everything that's going on out there, mm-hmm. and I feel that I'm addressing some of those issues that you can only talk so much about, and right. you know, only you're heard to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel that it comes from my experience and how I feel about things right now. Um, I, I started out, uh, uh, you know, I've only just gotten back to making art after right. this long resume <laughs> of my New York life, mm-hmm. and I started out very conceptual mm-hmm. and um, abstract, and I have since uh, taken a bit of a change, though it's conceptual work for sure, but I have made more um, objects mm-hmm. that reflect feeling, right. you know, and emotions about things. Mm-hmm. And um, they're pathetic, mostly. <laughs> I feel right. like my work has pathetic quality to it, yeah. which is very human. And, uh, and, you know, there's a feeling behind it. Yeah. yeah.
0: Tell me about your piece in this show, The Empty Suit. It's called Empty Suit.
3: Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, the, it comes from my costume design times. Mm-hmm. You know, I had this big, uh, I, th- I guess it was a six foot chicken wire roll. Mm-hmm. And I started rolling it out. And I guess. It recalled times when I'm rolling big bolts of fabric and mm-hmm. trying to, you know, fashion this and that. And I, I started in uh, making this man's suit, mm-hmm. and I, part of me because I had done a lot of work that um, I have this sort of mixture that makes it look like concrete, even mm-hmm. though it's often just chicken wire and um, plaster, gauze tape, and then I paint it. So I thought maybe I was going to make a cement overcoat. Right. And I fashioned this suit, and it was, with, at the same time being almost completely invisible, mm-hmm. it had a tremendous presence to it. Right. And I thought, whoa, let me just leave it at that. Right. And you know, given the times, and you know what people say as opposed to what they do, or how mm-hmm. much they'll say to get what they want, I felt that the concept of empty suit. It, uh, you know, hit the truth nail on the head. The truth
0: being that there are a lot of people here saying a lot of stuff in a very empty suit.
3: Yeah, they'll say whatever you want them to say. Right. And there's very little that gets backed up. Right.
0: No substance. Nothing. Yes. Talk to me a little bit about Basquiat.
3: Oh, Jean. I knew Jean probably when he was a teenager. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say 17. 18, 19, Mm -hmm. the very early years. Um, He was just an interesting, uh, funny, smart, extremely sensitive Mm -hmm. uh, young man who was out in the art scene and knew what he was edging toward. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, We spent a lot of time together uh, Mm -hmm. just tooling around and selling his postcards. And he painted lab coats under the um, copyright man-made. Mm-hmm. And we spent a lot of time talking on the phone about making art and life. Mm-hmm. And I remember he told me once he was thinking of making paintings like game boards with net corner pockets. Right. I thought, wow. He just was an interesting, this sounds very acute, interesting. You know, you and he was so charismatic. I mean, with right. all of that, you really couldn't spend enough time around him. Right, he was very, very interesting person, and he right. was just a kid. So, you know, this I knew this guy was the limit there. Right. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah, you know, I've heard that from other people who knew him at yeah. that time. Yeah. You tell me, how long is your piece going to be
3: here? Um, I I think the show ends on the. 20th, maybe, of December. Mm-hmm. So another 10 days. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent.
0: Well, hopefully, more people come see it and check it out and the rest of the exhibit. Oh, it's a fantastic honest. exhibit. Yes.
3: You now, I spent quite a bit of time looking at it, and every piece resonates with the theme. I think it's very good. Fantastic. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much for thank being you. here, Marianne. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
3: Thanks for tuning in to
0: 112BK. On tomorrow's show, as we head towards Wednesday's Be Heard Town Hall meeting, Mental Health as a Civil Right, we'll talk to two individuals about mental health and stigma and mental health in the LGBTQ community. And some ridiculous nonsense from singer-songwriter Amelia Robinson. Hey, I'm not being judgy, that's the name of her latest album. A quick note of correction, Marianne said that the show runs through December 20th, it actually runs through December 17th, so you'll wanna get here earlier. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley Ford, and is produced by Ross Tuttle, Fred Brown, Shireen Bargie, Emily Bogosian, and Kritzi Roberts. Our show is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer and is recorded by our studio technical director, Eric Haugasek. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Lee, and Sasha Mathias. If you want to get in touch, you can leave us a comment, tweet us using the hashtag 112BK, email us at 112BKpodcasts at gmail.com, or leave a message at 347-504-0801. And make sure you subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or whichever podcatcher you use. 112BK is part of the Brick Radio family. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio.